how many of you have ever climbed a 14er? It's a good Colorado crew. Look at that. You guys are a bunch of sporting people. Back in the day, I climbed a good handful of uh, 14ers, worked at a camp, Camp Red Cloud, up in the San Juans, and um, loved, I mean, it's amazing, beautiful, right? Amazing scenery. Um, but I remember we'd climb this one peak, Red Cloud, actually it's two, you do Red Cloud, Sunshine, all together, and uh, you're going up and hiking up the trail, you know, and as you go, the air gets thinner and you're leaving along on the side of the trail. And I remember something about that peak is you're, you're looking and you're like, hey, there's the top. It's not that far away. And so you're going and you're like, and you get up a little bit higher and then you look again and pretty soon the peak, your reference point, the peak, um, as you get a little closer, you have a realization. It's a false peak. And your heart sinks as you realize you have like another mile to go at 13,000 foot elevation. You're like, no. Um, anybody been there, done that? Yep, yep. If you climbed some 14ers, you've done that. If you climbed other mountains, you have a false peak. A, your reference point ends up moving. You get there and discover there isn't actually there. And here's what I've noticed about reference points in our lives. Every one of us, e e either consciously or unconsciously, we, we live by looking at reference points in our lives. And we do this in order to answer a fundamental question. Am I doing okay? How am I doing? Am I stacking up in life? How am I doing? And for so many, like as you're young, you might look at, you know, some toys that your friends have, right, as you're a kid. And as you get a little older, that just shifts, right? Boys never really grow out of this, do we? We just, the, the toys get bigger and more expensive. Um, and, and it's like sometimes you, you pick your reference point from, you know, that, that video gaming system, that, that new truck, whatever it is. You know, you've all heard the idea, he who dies with the most toys wins, Anybody heard that? Some of you, you're like, that's your life motto. It shouldn't be, but that is, right? Others, uh, for others, the reference point's a little bit different, isn't it? For so many, it's, it's maybe how she looks or how, how good he is at basketball. And you look over and that becomes your reference point and you compare and sort of jockey and try to figure out where you're at in comparison with others. I, I always looked at, my poster of Arnold Schwarzenegger as a reference point. And then I discovered there's people with what's called fast twitch muscle structure and slow twitch. And I found my groove in the slow twitch. And so I discovered uh, I'm not going to look like Arnold Schwarzenegger, no matter how hard I try. But you look at others as your reference point, and oftentimes what that looks like is looking others and at others, engaging them as we grow older in life, as maybe it's, you know, you look at the smartest person in the room and you want to you wanna be them, or, or you look at the most successful person with, with that position or that influence or that authority and you want to be them. Or oftentimes it's, it's a stuff thing, right? You look at how much stuff they have, uh, where they live, where they vacation, what they drive, and you draw that as your reference point and kind of size up how, how you are doing in life based on that reference point. I have a truth here for you today, and you may want to write this down or just remember it. And that's this, the wrong reference point will take you places you do not want to be. 
If you have the wrong reference point, guaranteed it's going to take you places you don't want to be. They teach you this in wilderness survival. Like, if your compass is a little bit off and you're just a few degrees off, it's not that far at the beginning. But stretch that out for a few miles, and all of a sudden, you are light years away from where you want to be. And if you're not careful, the other thing about reference points, you will pick a reference point that's a false peak. You will think that's it, and you will get up to that false peak, and you will realize, I, I, I'm here, but, but here, move to there. And you won't ever stop and think about that and go, wait a minute, maybe I'm picking wrong reference points. A lot of people, they arrive at a reference point to realize they are there, they got there, but they're there all alone, and they're lonely. Or others, you pick the wrong reference point, and it's a reference point you will never achieve in life. And because of that, you have this like constant broken record in your mind of, I'll never measure up, I'll never be good enough, I'll never be pretty enough. In fact, perhaps some of you in the room ha have developed some very destructive habits to cope with that little voice inside your head. The wrong reference point will take you places you don't want to be. And the text today is going to say, hey, be careful about the reference point you choose because your satisfaction and your happiness in life depends on it. So if you have your Bibles, why don't you start turning on over to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. We're going to pick up where we left off. We're in week 4 of a series, a 10-week series in the book of Ecclesiastes. This is a 3 thousand-year-old text. And if you're thinking, what can I learn from a 3,000-year-old text? Let me just tell you, these are the life observations of King Solomon. Now, King Solomon, if you don't know anything about him, he is known as the wisest man who ever walked this planet, except for Jesus. Um, kings and queens came and sat at his feet to learn his great wisdom. Um, he brought the nation of Israel to the peak of its wealth and influence. He had at one point, he tried everything that he thought could bring satisfaction to, to a man. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. He threw parties and raves for 20,000 people with, like, tons of cattle. I mean, crazy parties. He designed and built one of the, the seven wonders of the ancient world. He had the largest, talk about money, he had the largest gold treasure on earth. He had seen more, done more, accomplished more than you and I will ever hope to accomplish. So you may want to listen to what he has to say about finding meaning in life. Because he's going to tell us, hey, I examined and, and tried to live life, not just by reaching some reference points, but by besting every reference point the human heart could think of. And I discovered I had the wrong reference points. And if you want to avoid a life of regret you might want to listen to me. And so picking up where we left off, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 16. And just to warn you, some of these, we've been having some rays of light. If you've been with us for a few weeks, you know, some of these texts are pretty heavy, aren't they? A little depressing. I'm surprised you all keep coming back. I'm glad you do. So it's going to start out heavy again, okay? Here's what he says. Moreover, I saw... Under the sun. Under the sun. Now, he's going to say this. I saw six times in today's passage, and that's kind of significant because in the scripture, six is a symbolic number for mankind. 
And so what he's talking about here when it says, I saw under the sun, he's talking about on this planet, devoid of a greater, larger, um, you know, eternal reference point, life as you can understand it from science, from studying, from trying to figure out what's, what makes the world tick. He says, moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there, there was wickedness. There's corruption in the justice system. Some people get the book thrown at them. Other people seem to go scot-free, and it's not fair. He says, and in the place of righteousness, even there, there, there was wickedness. Too often, the, the dudes that, that are supposed to be the holy guys turn out not to be so holy. What's up with that? He says, I, I said in my heart, like I'm trying to figure this all out. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. Remember last week, there is a time, the song, the old bird song, turn, turn. There's a time for every season. And he said, I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing or literally um, purifying them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. The idea here in Hebrew is, is God allows humans to understand their own mortality, that they're going to die. And that messes with us, doesn't it? He says, for what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As the one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for this is all vanity. He goes on, all go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. You've heard that before. If you went to a funeral, you've heard that before, probably on a Western movie. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. Apart from a greater reference point, you're left wondering, who knows what happens after death. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? So he says, you're going to die. And under the sun, who knows what happens after that? And you can maybe you can experience a little joy now. Don't miss that. But you think you can control the future? Eh, think again. And he goes on. He's getting into a real mood here. He goes on in, in verse 1 of chapter 4. He says, again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and that they had no one to comfort them. And on the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. He's like, the people with the power to do something about it didn't do anything about it. And then he goes on, he's like, and this is how this all feels to me when I look at this. He says, and I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who is not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are under the sun. Let's just pray and go. Just kidding. You ever feel like that? Did you look around the world? Did you watch the news? And just story after story pours in, reminding you how broken this world is? See, Solomon nails it in, in this section. He's like, like under, the, under the sun, apart from deeper meaning, 
a greater reference point. I get to hopefully draw a little bit of enjoyment now. Thankfully, God gave us a little bit of enjoyment in, in, in life. But then you die, just like the animals do. You return to the dust. And have you noticed how many people life is just awful for? The oppression, the pain, the hurt. That the powerful do what's right for who? Number one, for themselves. That everyone is always thinking of themselves. And without some kind of revelation from God, man just sees himself like any other animal and acts like it. Have you noticed that about life? How does that make sense? And Solomon says this interesting thing in that section. He says, hey, the only consolation I can find is, is this thing, this conviction in my heart that I know that God will judge everything in the end. That somehow I know that God will make it right. Like, you're, you don't get away with it. And that's what Solomon says. That's, that's the message of the New Testament, too. That there is a final judgment. That it doesn't always make sense here. You know, the scripture wasn't given to you to give you all the answers, which is deeply troubling to us. No, a lot of people, like, you treat the, a lot of people treat the scripture like it, it's just there to answer every little thing that comes into your mind. No, it's there to instruct you how to orient your life properly in relationship to God. It's not there to satisfy your every curiosity about the future. The message of the scripture is you are a creature. You are not God. I love that quote from that, uh, uh, for one of the authors I'm, I'm reading, um, where he said, every week in my office, I counsel Christians who are upset that they're not God. And so what do we do with this? Because here's what Solomon does over and over in this book, is he's going to smack you across the side of the head with reality. Go wake up. Life isn't always pretty. It doesn't always go the way you want, and you don't always have all the answers. It's called life. What do you do about this? Well, I'll tell you what we do as a culture, especially over the last 150 years. We rail against God. This is called philosophically the problem of suffering. If there's a good God, why is there evil? And we talked about this last week. It, what's so ironic as you sort of, you know, trace these arguments down to their roots is that um, in actuality, you are using a category that requires a good God to judge God. Have you noticed that? Because devoid of a reference point of a good God, who are you to call something evil? It's not evil. It's just survival of the fittest. If I cut you off to get to work on time and you're late, well, that's good for me, bad for you, but it's good for me. In this system, it's about me, isn't it? Ultimately, and, and you don't really have a rational basis for saying, well, that's, that's right, that's wrong, that's evil. And some very brilliant um, like atheists and agnostics acknowledge this. Now, they make societal arguments, but ultimately they acknowledge yeah, there's, there's not really a rational basis for this. And so, so we do that, or we judge, we think that, like, God, why do you allow suffering, or why do you allow evil to exist in the world? And we think that he doesn't care. But if you remember, like, when Jesus heals a, a, a blind guy, 
It says he sighs deeply and then he heals them. And here's the idea. It's the same word that Paul uses for saying all creation groans under its current condition. The fallen brokenness that entered the world that we see in Genesis chapter 3 with sin. That there's this thing that it's like, this isn't right. This isn't the way it was meant to be. And Jesus has compassion on those, right? You see that. But here's what we, we do. We judge God for not doing anything now to stop evil. And then we judge him for the fact that he's going to do something later to judge evil. Have you noticed that? Like, God, why don't you stop evil now? Why don't you deal with this now? And then we talk about eternal judgment, the final judgment. It's like, how could a God judge people? We are very consistent as human beings, aren't we? But I'm sure you've had some of these conversations. I hope you've had, if you've had conversations with people about Jesus. That there's a final judgment, because the message of the scripture, just like Solomon says here, is there, there's going to be a day when God sorts it out in the end. And no, you and I don't, like in this life, it doesn't always make sense. You know, the evil guy doesn't always get their due. That's life. But Solomon says, I'm convinced in the message of scripture and the message of Jesus' words to us is, oh, God will judge in the end. There will be a reckoning. God will sort it all out. And that makes us deeply uncomfortable too, because I'm just guessing, if you stop to actually think about it, I'm guessing you're, you're pretty happy that there's not instant judgment now, aren't you? Because you've done some things that should have probably been instantly judged. I mean, who hasn't been cut off in traffic and you think, man, I just wish there was a cop right there. Just pull him over. And then you cut somebody off and they honk and you're like, and you look behind you like, I hope there's not a cop there. <laughs> right? That's human nature. We want, we want to pick and choose. I, I saw this one illustration of a, a spray can, like, you, like with all this suffering, and you want to blot out the parts you don't like, but you don't want you or those you love to be judged. And that's why Peter talks about the patience of God and allowing people to come to repentance that they would find him, that he would draw them, that, that, they would, that he would forgive them. He's like, oh, no, no, don't, don't think that because Jesus hasn't come back yet, it's, he's slow. A day is like a thousand years, a thousand years like a day. No, no, don't think about it that way. It's his patience because he loves you and he wants to invite you in. So we either like rail against God, we judge God, or so many times we're like, we're going to fix this. Viva la revolution. Go read about the French Revolution. See how that turned out. Or any various type of utopian system of the last 100, 150 years. We don't have a very good history of this. The idea is, you know, there's this power struggle and the oppressed are going to rise up and there'll be a bloody revolution and, you know, the let's stick it to the bourgeois, right? And that's been the mentality. Those have been, um, those have been systems of thought. Actually, interestingly enough, that have actually drawn from some of the Judeo-Christian value of the scriptures are uniformly against oppression of the weak in favor of the wealthy. Have you noticed that? But then also the scripture in Exodus, as, as we see the law of God, says, but you can't just take something away from the wealthy in order to, to give it to the poor. That also isn't just. And so some, a lot of these utopian systems said, well, if we could just get the, you know, the state to figure this all out, 
it'll, it'll be good. And if we could just rise up, you know, and if we could be in power, we'll do it right and fair. What's the issue with that? The, the human heart? The fallenness of humankind? Because invariably, what do you see in these systems? Whoever's on top, once they get power, what do they do? They use it to enrich their and, and control the power themselves. The stuff Solomon was just talking about. There's wickedness in the midst of what should be justice. Over 100 million people were murdered under utopian sort of ideologies in the last century that trace back to the, to the thinking of Marx and the thinking of Lenin. Because it does not take into account the innate fallenness of the human heart. That's, that's why our founders understood that, and they set up a system of checks and balances and a rule of law, right? So we think, we'll just solve the problem through human means. We'll create some utopia here on earth. The problem is us, humans. Or, for most of us, and maybe this is where you are right now, we just tune out. Right? You change the channel. How many of you, because I've done this, I bet you have. How many of you have been watching the news and you're like, man, I just need something light, and you turn on like a comedian? Because at some point you're like, this is just too much. I just want to pretend this isn't there. All this, like, craziness, all this talk of, like, you know, I, I'm just going to tune out. And you turn on a comedian, and you laugh hard. One time I was, um, I put on a comedian, and uh, I was with one of my friends, another pastor who will remain unnamed. And, uh, and we turned on a comedian, and he was a little sexist, and we were laughing a little too loud at the wrong parts. And we got in real trouble, so... But you've done that. You just tune out and you say, um, I'm going to just try to pretend that that isn't even happening because at some point it's just too much. And, and here's what Solomon's doing in this first section. He's saying, no, don't do that. I want you to stare long and hard at this. Don't dismiss this too quickly. Don't just think that that's somewhere out there because I'm going to tell you where the root of it is. The root of it's in here. He goes on to tell us where the root of this comes. And he says this, Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. Envy. Envy is a word we don't use too much in common everyday conversation, but it's actually known as one of the seven deadly sins. It's, it's linked to the Tenth Commandment, Thou shalt not covet. And that is really this idea of having this strong desire for that which is, which is someone else's that if left unchecked could motivate you to do things you never thought you might do. And the interesting thing about the Ten Commandments, unlike, you know, most of the other ones, this one, like, I can't look at you and go, coveter, coveter. Because it's a matter of the heart. Actually, when Jesus comes around, he shows us how they're all matters of the heart. 
In fact, he writes in Scripture, he had some interesting things to say about envy, which is very much tied to covetousness. He says this, For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All those evils come from inside and defile a person. He says, actually, envy is, is evil. And here's what we do is we look at all that out there and we either tune it out or we think, well, well, I'm nothing like that. And we feel okay about ourselves because we're not, you know, pick your favorite villain from world history. Whew, I'm doing pretty good. And he says, no, check your heart. Because there's this little thing in there that, that if left unchecked, you will find yourself doing things you never thought you could do the same driving force. Jesus' brother James said this, where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder in every evil practice. And if you want to chase this down, there's a, there's a root here. See, what we do is we look to our right and our left, and we pick a reference point, and we think if I could just be more like that, and then we envy, and then that drives a behavior in our lives. Envy is a little thing in us that secretly celebrates when others fail, maybe you've got someone in your life that was always a rival. They were always smarter than you, getting better grades, or just a little more popular. And then they, they hit a road bump. They have a relationship thing or whatever that, that goes off the rails. And you find this little thing in, in you that's like, oh, I feel so bad for you. But secretly in your heart, there's this thing that makes you feel a little better about yourself. And if you're in tune with it, you're like, ew, where did that come from? That's icky. Jesus said that came from your heart, came from within. Envy is so destructive. It's like a, a corrosive force. Proverbs says this in Proverbs 14. It says, a heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. And some of you have a family member like this, that because of envy of another family member, um, what they had versus like, they're not the person they were 15 years ago. Envy, it's like the, it's, it's sucked something away from them. Envy has a corrosive effect on our souls. And Solomon looks and he says, hey, this envy is at the root of so many things. It's at the root of it. And what causes this envy, the thing that contributes it to it, is reference points. We pick the wrong reference points. We look around, we want we want, and so we envy. And you know what? Just like the villains of history, one of my commentaries said this. It says, in pursuing out of envy the neighbor above us on the ladder, we inevitably step on the head of the neighbor below us. Envy makes you think about who? Me. Have you ever noticed that the common point in all your reference points, the common denominator is what? you. It's always sizing you up against a reference point. And when life is all about me, which is the natural tendency of the human heart to think about me pretty much all the time at the expense of you and at the expense of we, damage comes. And so he says, I see this as a root envy. And he goes on and he says, this is also, this is 
vanity and striving after the wind. Let me illustrate this this way. We've been talking about striving after the wind and vanity. It's this little Hebrew word, habel. And it literally means a vapor or a mist. A couple weeks ago, uh, or last couple weeks ago, we illustrated it with soap bubbles. Bubbles, I blew bubbles, you watched. They were shiny, they were sparkly. And what happened to them? They pop. And this is the idea behind Habel. It's a vapor. It's a mist. It lasts for a little while. And then it goes away. I discovered something, just, just public service announcement. If you ever put dry ice in the freezer overnight, it disappears. I had three chunks, and I went and looked, and I had one chunk left this morning, and I'm like, oh, no. So somebody's going to pick one up for 11. But it's like a vapor. It's a mist. And he says, here, here, it's, it's not something you can grasp. You try, and it's like it's gone, isn't it? You can't hold it in your hands. You think you wish you could grasp it. And, and Solomon, over and over and over in this text, is going to compare. He's going to use this word vanity, habel, over and over. So many things in life, they're like a vapor, a mist, and we try to grasp at them, and we can't. And he compares it to chasing after the wind. Let me, let me try to chase some wind. I'm going to create some wind. My wife told me I'm good at that. Ah, I think I caught it. Have you noticed you can't catch the wind? Why is that? Well, it's like that false peak. It's a reference point. The wind, by the time you get there, there moves, right? And here's what he says about comparison and about envy and about picking someone else as a reference point and trying to get more like them. Your reference point will constantly move. You will never be there. You will never get to the spot where you're like, I'm here, because you get there and there moved. Many of you know this because you're at your goal and your heart is still saying, well, if I just get there, because you look up and you're like, well, I, I got there and now I'm not there. Now there is there. And you never stop to think about the fact that every reference point you set moves. It's like a treadmill. There's never an end. And Solomon says, I actually was able to get to the end of myself and try everything that you think is going to bring you happiness and satisfaction and do it. And it didn't do it for me. It was like a vapor, a mist. The reference point moved. And I got to the end of that one, and that one moved. It's a striving after the wind. Now, think about what drives you in life. What are you so driven for? If you're type A, because here's what I'm guessing. You're arguing with me in your mind already. You're like, well, come on. I mean, accomplishment. Like, we're supposed to get out there and seize life, carpe diem, right? And make stuff happen and do stuff for God and for me. Like, make something of yourself. Make a difference. And you're already arguing with me. And so just so you realize that Solomon's not saying don't do anything. He's, he's a guy that accomplished more than ever, any of us ever will. <laughs> talk about driven, type A. He got stuff done. He wants to talk to our deeper motivations. So, but just so you don't think he's saying that, here's what he says. He says, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. <laughs> the NIV is like, and consumes himself. This is a more literal translation. Eats his own flesh. The guys wanted me to do a sermon illustration on this. I'm like, no. Nasty. (laughs) 
You know what's interesting? Solomon here is saying, hey, the op- there's two sides of the coin. One is a drivenness based on false reference points. The other is a laziness. <clears throat> and it will destroy you too. Because here's what you have. They are both, what's the commonality? They're both all about me, aren't they? It's me being something, like looking a certain way, appearing as something to other people, making something of myself, being better than them, or it's, uh, who cares? I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to go you know, like do van life. Just get a van, do van life. Have you ever noticed that all the van life channels on YouTube, they last like six months. And then they're like, we're, we're getting into our new house today, you know? And you're like, what happened to the van? Well, you know, two kids, the van didn't really work. Um, I'm picking on it. Van life's not bad. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying. What Solomon's saying is laziness is all about me as well. Because here's what a lazy person does, is life is just about what I consume and what I can have, and I'm not doing anything for anyone else. And some of you, we talk all the time in the series, Living Life Backwards, and this is a truth. You will get to the end of your life and regret, you know, doing too much and not connecting with your family. Others of you will get to the end of your life if you're not careful and regret the fact that you spent too many years in the basement playing video games. You need to get up and do something with your life that can actually make a difference in other people's lives. So this is the other side of the coin. It's all about you. And I love this because Solomon would call young men to, to do hard things, to accomplish something that's bigger than just yourself. So he's not saying... He's not saying don't do anything. He's saying he's commenting on what the motivation of our hearts is and what drives us. What drives you in life? Because I'm just guessing most of you aren't struggling so much with this. You're struggling with the amount of things you pack into your schedule each and every day. The amount of things you look over at and you're like, I need that if I could just get that. If I was just more like them. And you strive and you try. And he goes on in verse 6. He says this, Better is a handful of quietness, a peace of tranquility, than two hands full of toil and striving after the wind. Better is one handful. Here's the idea behind this in the Hebrew. One hand open. I can receive what God places. I'm not clinging to it. I'm generous. I'm willing to give away. I'm not controlled versus two hands that get what you have and hold on to it for dear life. Grasping, clinging, and there's never peace in that. I watched this video years ago um, on, on BBC, and uh, it's so cool because it was in Africa, and this is how they catch monkeys. And they drill like a hole in a termite mound and a small hole big enough for a monkey to slide his hand in. And then they put like peanuts or something in the bottom of the hole. And the monkey would would reach in and grasp those peanuts. And then the hole was too small to get his fist out of. But he was just so grasping onto there that he would like, he's like freaking out, you know. And and they walk right up to him and capture the monkey. And we're a lot, you're, you're that monkey a lot of times. So clinging to everything you have and stressing so much about, about what you have and what you want and your reference point that you're not living open-handed. 
See, see, the Bible doesn't ever say that stuff is bad or the physical world is bad or money is bad. No. It's a tool. It's neutral. But it does say the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And this constant drivenness for more, 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 where there's never a finish line, there's never a place where you're like, I got it. You never pause and ask, well, how much is enough? You never pause to ask, how much more could I give away? How much more could I do for someone else? It's an orientation that's about me and thinking the more I can accumulate, the happier I'll be. And Solomon says, there's not peace there. You want peace? You're not going to find it there. Peace is found when you learn how to live your life open-handed towards other people, towards God, where you're receiving and where you're giving, and, and you're not so driven to cling to everything you have. Some of you, if you could just wrap your mind and heart around that one scripture, it would change your life. And you would find that peace, that tranquility, that contentment that you're missing. He goes on. He says this. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, no one to inherit his stuff, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches. So he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? Some of you have never stopped to ask, like, what is driving me? Why am I doing everything I'm doing? Why am I packing my schedule so full trying to get to that reference point? It's probably going to be a false peak. I can't even enjoy. I never even stop and enjoy the things that I have. As soon as I get there, I'm I'm on to whatever's next. There's no rest in my heart. He says, this also is vanity an unhappy business. And then he goes on and gives us some advice for how to break this pattern in our lives. How to shift our thinking. How to escape this pattern. He says this. Here's what I want you to notice. He says, you got to start thinking we, not me. We, not me. How are we doing? He goes on, he says, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. You can get there, you can get to the top, but so many times you find yourself all alone. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. This one's for married folks, singles. So just uh, Two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. And if you want to begin to experience more of the way God intended life, you need to start thinking more as we instead of just me. This is uh, probably hits home for a lot of us here in Western Colorado. We're very like, you know, the whole rugged individualism thing. I can do it. I don't need anybody. Just need my horse. 
And Solomon says, right, you may get to the top, but you're going to be all by yourself. See, see Scripture is all about community. It's all about thinking we. You know, almost every command in the New Testament about the way we live our lives is meant to be lived out in the context of community. We have a value around here, one anothering. That's because over and over you see this in Scripture. Love one another, care for each other, be kind to each other, encourage each other, speak life into each other, all these things over and over. It's all about each other. That's how the Christian life is meant to be lived. And for some of you, you've let community completely drop off your radar. And it's wonderful to come here on the weekend and, you know, hear the word of God and worship him and lift our hearts up. But you need more than that. You need people in your life who are there with you. You need community. And here's what we've seen over and over again. Um, as we began to like plan this series for the new year, we had this. Uh, we noticed this pattern in people's lives. We started t- telling you about this um, that there's these times of life, oftentimes like you know, in youth group years or as you're raising kids, you're very focused and very intentional. But we've seen this pattern in people's lives that it's at the end of that goal for so many when when they begin to have this shift in thinking, it's like, wow, I worked hard, I accomplished a great goal, and now I just need some me time. Retirement. And while I think it's a great thing to slow down a little bit, you were never meant to retire in the kingdom of God. There's no retired Christians. You're like, wait a minute. You don't have to work 50, 60 hours a week anymore, making a living, hopefully. But you're full-time in the kingdom of God. You're meant to be in the context of community, to be involved in serving. Same thing, like people raise kids, and then as soon as they empty nesters, it's like, man, I just, for so many, we've seen this pattern. It's sort of like, drop out. Quit serving. Quit being involved. Quit going to small group. Just need some me time. And before you know it, you know, a season of ski weekends turns into four or five years and some real regrets about the community that's lost. In fact, for many people, these are the moments when some of the greatest regrets of life happen, when relationships blow up and families are are destroyed. And for so many, it begins with disconnecting from community because you were never meant to do the Christian life alone. You know, in... uh, after next weekend, uh, we're doing something. As we go through this book of Ecclesiastes, we have a value, biblically serious, responsive to the Holy Spirit. So we usually teach verse by verse through, through books of the Bible. And this book, we're going to try to keep this series to 10 weeks. And that means there's a few passages we're not going to cover from stage. But what we want to teach you to do is to dig into the Scripture yourself. So we're preparing. We've got a great um, study and a journal called the Here Journal that we're preparing. And what we want you to do is to start thinking this week about gathering together with two or three or four others or five, small group, getting some friends together, and actually going through these scriptures together. That you would actually take a moment in community to study, just for four weeks. Not a huge commitment yet. Just for four weeks, we want you to get into this and pick some friends and say, hey, let's go through this together and study this together. Let's form some community or reform, because some of you, you had it, and it just dropped off the radar for you. And let's dig into this. Let's pray for each other. Just four weeks. So be thinking about that.
All right, he goes on. Verse 13, he says, Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who knew, no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been poor. And I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. And there was no end of all the people and all whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is the vanity and a striving after the wind. And here's the message, the heart of this. Whether you came from nothing to become something, or you were something. You can be at the absolute top of your field, the absolute top of your game, but if you get there without your relationships intact, you lose. All those people cheering you on, high-fiving you, probably aren't going to be at the side of your hospital bed. How are your relationships? I heard this uh, another pastor um, used this illustration. He said, I've never met a young woman who hated her dad because he made her drive an old beater car. Maybe she's a little embarrassed when she pulled up at school. But 20 years later, she wasn't like, I just hate my dad. He made me drive a Pinto or a, I don't know. <laughs> that was a long time ago. <laughs> Ford Focus. But he says he's known plenty of young ladies whose dad gave him a $40,000 car and didn't have any relationship. And there was a wound, and those often were the girls that went, and their lives fell apart. Guys, listen up. There's a big difference between being a good provider, which is important, but there's a big difference between being a good provider and a good father. The one requires relationship and being intentional and purposeful about connecting and maintaining heart relationship and getting in classes like our parenting class. Are you going to get there with your relationships intact? i got to tell you, this is a, one, a sobering one for me, right? Because as a pastor, you look at stats of pastor's kids, and you're like, man, that's... Uh, so many times ministry consumes everything. This is hard. This is something I have to remind myself of, and I don't always do it very well. You guys come up to me sometimes and say, great message. That makes me feel good. You know, my kids never do that. Actually, once. My kid's getting older. He's like, hey, that was a pretty good message. He had to sit in and listen to me. I think it was Christmas or something. I'm like, oh, Thanks. Most of the time, they're like, we don't want to listen to you. Boring. The people that mean the most to you are oftentimes the people we most neglect in our lives in order to reach a reference point that will prove to be a false peak. See, the heart of the issue is this. Who, am, who or what am I going to use as a reference point in my life? And if you pick other people if you look around and pick those that you wish you could be more like, it will always disappoint you. But if there is a God who loves you and who knows your name and who sent his son to die for you, wouldn't it make sense to take what he says about you as a reference point? 
what he's done for you as a reference point and to live out of that. And here's what the Apostle Paul tells us about that God who loves you and knows your name. He says this, it is, it is by grace, for it is by grace, unmerited favor. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works. You didn't look around and go, if I could just get there and then start working for it and earning it, and pretty soon you're like, whew, I'm in. No, you never deserved it. He just loved you, and he came in the flesh to die for you so that no one may boast. Listen up. Some of you, you know that, but you don't know this next part. For we are his workmanship. The NLT says we are his masterpiece. His masterpiece. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. That God, you, he created you. You're his masterpiece. He put you on this world. You don't have to look to your right or left for a reference point because your reference point is what he's done for you. He knows you. He loves you. He made you. He gifted you in certain ways. He gave you the size nose you have. And the giftings and the talents that you have. And he has a special purpose. You're his masterpiece. Some of you don't feel like that. But you need to hear the truth of that. Your creator loves you exactly the way you are and has a purpose and a plan for you. And it is that you would walk out his purposes in this world. And they've been prepared ahead of time. You just got to walk in them. You don't have to strive for them. You don't, have to, you don't have to stress about them. You just have to say, yes, God, and walk in them. What do you have for me to do today, God? And yes, I'm going to provide for my family. I'm not going to be lazy. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to share Jesus. I'm going I'm to think about the future. But I don't have to grasp and cling on to it. I can live open-handed. Because you've prepared it ahead of time. You're in control. You've got this. I have eternity with you. Just stand. For some, you have never embarked on the journey of faith and embraced what Jesus did for you. And I want to invite you to do that because that's the only way you can live with a proper reference point in life. And so if that's you in the room, maybe you just feel a sense that, that God's tugging at your heart. The Holy Spirit speaking to you and saying, come on, come home. Would you just respond? You can pray a simple prayer like this. There's nothing magic about the words. Lord Jesus, I believe in you. I believe that you're the son of God and that you died and rose again. I want to experience the life that only you can give. I want to turn away from my old life and turn towards you and follow you. I want to live for you. Forgive me of my sin. Welcome me into your family and help me live with you as my only reference point. In Jesus' name. And Lord, for all my other friends, would you just let this sink in? That they would feel the weight of this, that, that for so many that hear that little voice over and over in their heads, you're never going to be enough. That they would hear, you're my child. You're my masterpiece. For others that are so driven, would they hear, you can let go a little bit. 
You don't hold the world in your hands. I've got it. Would you allow us to set the right reference points and arrive at the place that you have for us, Lord, with our relationships intact? We love you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.